Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Hi. You know that movie you always wanted to see, but you didn't for whatever reason? Well, I call those black hole films. Everyone has them, and this podcast aims to do something about that. I'm Jeremy Lalonde, and every episode I'll be joined by one or more guests to watch a film that at least someone in that group hasn't seen. We'll talk about our expectations of it before it, and then our thoughts after it. This is episode 75, and if you're digging the show, please subscribe, rate, review it wherever it is you listen to it. This week I'm by myself again to bring you part three of my ongoing James Bond series. The final part will air next week. I originally had this as one big epic episode that encompassed 10 films and 3 Bonds, but decided it might be a bit more digestible in smaller pieces. So, hence you get two episodes back to back. This installment will cover the films involving Timothy Hutton and the Bond who I largely consider to be my Bond since he's the one I grew up with in my formative years, Pierce Brosnan. So without any further delay, let's watch a whack load of Bond films. So just finished the first up, which is The Living Daylights, our first Timothy Dalton, our new Bond. What an 80s riffic update on the Bond theme. It's got that synth and weird bass stuff going on. Really, really dug that in a completely ironic way. Uh, Aha, doing the opening song, was pretty awesome. I didn't know that they were one of the Bond composers. Not composers, but one of the people that wrote the theme song, so that was really fun. I gotta say the opening, I'm of two minds about the opening of, of this one. The paintball was kind of fun. Uh, we've seen a training session before. I think it was Never Say Never Again um, with the last Connery one where we got to see him in, a tra- in a, a, what we didn't know at first was a training session. So that felt a bit repetitive, although I like the callback. That's interesting. You know, I like the invention of that it's not a typical training session because someone's infiltrated it. Uh, I do like, so I don't like that it's repetitive, but I do like that it actually plays into the rest of the narrative of the movie, which is uncommon for Bond openings. You know, often they're kind of one-offs and be played as a joke or just to remind us of how awesome Bond is. So it's really nice to see uh, something that is setting up the narrative for the film. And, you know, welcome Timothy Dalton. You're only around for two films, so I will do my best not to get attached to you. I will say that you are a much softer and gentler Bond. Um, you know, first up, you, you have a chance to kill this supposed assassin, and you don't. Probably just because she's a woman who you deem as to be a potential sexual conquest. Uh, Your reason that you give to other people is that you only kill professionals. But, you know, we'll look past that. Definitely the least um, misogynistic of the Bond uh, iterations so far. And I really, really enjoyed that about it. Although he does have this moment about... A thir- two-thirds through the movie, maybe not even, where he rips the, the shirt off of a woman to cause a distraction, which is not cool, Bond. But, I mean, given what you've done in the past, you're definitely a step above the rest. Oh, I love the one random just moment. They're, they're going through, at one point, these dossiers of these KGB assassins and one can kill you with their hands or thighs. Another one, that's just kind of a throwaway bit, uses explosive teddy bears. 
So that's the level of KGB assassins, assassins we're dealing with in this world. Uh, Q is up to his normal, terrible, very period-driven jokes. The the ghetto blaster thing that's like a rocket launcher. I'm sure that joke played amazing in the 80s. <laughs> it's a wonderful eye roller now. Uh, I really liked the assassin guy, the Necros. He's the guy that uh, he, he can kind of mimic voices. He's always got the headphones on. He's often killing people by strangling them with headphone wire, which would not be strong enough to, <laughs> to kill someone, I don't think. I think that's a bit of a stretch, but we'll let it go because I like, I like the, the running gag behind it. I like that the the movie takes place over, I think it's like seven continents, uh, or countries anyway, but it, it, it's got a pretty wide scope, which is really awesome. The the car, when they're in Russia, the Soviet Union, that he uses to get away with, it, like it cuts lasers, it launches rockets, uh, at one point it, it cuts a giant hole in the middle of the ice. That's an awesome car. My, my one complaint is that often these cars that have all these gadgets feel like they can just magically do whatever needs to be done to get whatever out of whatever jam Bond is currently in. And that's fun to watch up to a point. It'd be much more interesting to watch the car have limitations that we're already aware of and then have to see them be creative to use those to their advantage given the disadvantages. Uh, right now, it just feels like a magic thing that can do whatever it needs to do as opposed to Bond having to show his ingenuity and skills by making it do something that it's not necessarily intended to do, but it's still awesome nonetheless. That's my complaint. Uh, the end of that sequence is just pure awesome Bond ridiculousness with him tobogganing down in a cello case. John Reese davies as Pushkin was a great big surprise for me. had no idea he was in the Bond films at all, and he is his typical, awesome, charming, fantastic self. I can never get enough of that man. Kara, uh, played by Miriam Dabo, I'm going to say. I'm going to try to pronounce her name that way and see if that's right. Kind of flat for me as a Bond girl. Um, because of the nature of the relationships that Bond has with all these women, I have a pretty hard time with the ones who actually seem to fall for him because I know that he's just going to be moving on within the next movie. Uh, so that just makes me sad inside. And I, I really kind of prefer the ones that I feel like are his equals and can take as well as they get, and that are, are going to enjoy and have fun as a little fling with Bond, but aren't going to get attached. I just think, I, I don't like the women that get attached to Bond because they're just setting themselves up for heartbreak. I like the ones that kind of see him for exactly who he is and just don't get attached. That's just me. Overall, I like using the British and the, and the Russian intergovernmental relationships with each other, as well as interacting with the shady arms dealer as, as the backdrop of the film. I think it's a pretty interesting one. That said, Koskov and Whitaker are a little more than cookie-cutter villains. They're kind of just evil for evil's sake. All they just want is chaos, and it's just not as interesting as a villain who has an interesting point of view that I can kind of get behind if I can see the world through his lens. That said, Whitaker's War Room of Death is pretty fun and awesome, and watching Bond deal with him in that situation is, is a pretty good, fun final set piece, especially with Whitaker dying on his remake of The Battle of Waterloo. So that was The Living Daylights. Not bad. You know, pretty pretty fun for our first Timothy Dalton installment. 
Uh, next up is License to Kill, which I'm pretty sure I saw when I was like eight years old, potentially, uh, and don't have a lot of memories of it, although I think it's not remembered as one of the better Bond films. But let's see, because I'm going to watch this right away. It's the Timothy Dalton double feature tonight. But for you, you know, these are all kind of binge-watched, because this episode all comes out as one string of things. So that was License to Kill. I thought I saw this movie when I was a kid, but I don't remember any of this. Um, I remember a car chase with some cool cars. So maybe it was actually that, that awesome car sequence in the previous film that I remembered. Maybe I didn't see this at all. But I also thought I remembered seeing James Bond in the U.S. I'm very confused right now. That said, here we are. So, yeah, a woman being beaten in the opening sequence sets a record for the mistreatment of women in James Bond movies. Especially coming out of the previous film, which was better, I guess. I mean, at least later she tells Bond to take his hands off of her, and he listens. But you know what? We're going to get more into this Lupe character in a bit, and, and how it's a real step back for the Bond franchise, and where it was starting to go. But that's also just very cyclical of Bond. You think he's making improvements in the area of, of women. But then, you know, one step back. I like that we get a Bond film in the U.S. Or, you know, partly in the U.S. So overall, this opening sequence, I thought was a real step up from the last one. It's really epic in a really cool way. The helicopter plane sequence was great. Uh, I like that, again, it was another opening that played into the overall story. That it wasn't just a standalone thing. The opening uh, title sequence, whoever the girl is in that silhouette in the opening is 100% naked, and they aren't doing a full silhouette here. There's, a, there's a, an opacity to it. You know, I understand the visual motif has been around. They've used it before, but I didn't remember seeing the outline of actual nipples in past ones, and I'm not sure we need that. And there it is. I have to say that the breakout for Sanchez was coordinated awfully quickly considering he was just caught about an hour or so earlier. And then he tortures Felix. You'd think he would kill him, uh, but he doesn't. He just feeds him to a shark that that doesn't completely kill him. But then he has his new bride-to-be, Felix's, raped and murdered, which is awful and completely unnecessary. It really is. I mean, the way they set up this film, it could work just as well to have Felix be the one that's outright murdered and leave Della alive. You know, Della is easily one of the most lovable characters ever to grace a Bond film. And so to it, it's just, she's set up that way just so that she's this damsel that, that Bond has to avenge. So it turns it into an exploitation film, which is not a bad thing for Bond. It, it, it's different in a way. And in fact, I would say if they'd have made that change, if they'd made it about him avenging Felix's life, 
I would have been much happier, and I thought it would have been a bigger win for the film. You know, I do love a Bond film that's based upon personal revenge. It's a great setup for a movie. You know, this series likes to traffic and saving the world stuff, so it's really nice to see something that's really personal and that puts Bond on tilt and sees him reacting emotionally to things and, and going to places that he normally wouldn't go. You know, it's not about espionage or fighting for queen and country in this one, and that's really refreshing. I mean, he resigns from from the agency. He loses his license to kill just when he probably needs it the most, and this isn't a typical globe, globe-trying adventure. Globe-trying adventure, you know, it sticks really close to one spot, which is also refreshing. You know, it feels like a small and simple story, and that's a huge plus for this film. From a plot point, that's a winner. But there's other elements that hurt it. I mean, there's a weird moment where uh, when 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 Bond first quits, that one of someone from the agency tries to shoot him, and M stops him staying. There's too many people watching. So would they have killed Bond? Anyway, that's just a weird thing that was really quick that I had to mention. Um, but getting into the stuff, the other stuff that hurts the films, it's really getting back to this whole uh, treatment of, of women. Uh, and so you've got the stuff that happens to Della, which is just abhorrent and not necessary. There's other ways to set up uh, caring for Bond and, and making him want to avenge somebody. Uh, so Lupe... Played by Talisa Soda, Soda, Soto. Sorry if I said that wrong. It's a really interesting case. We're introduced to her. She's being beaten for betraying her boyfriend Sanchez, who she hates, clearly hates. And then she dismisses his behavior as being her fault because she's angry at him, uh, which is not great. But then she doesn't take shit from anyone else in the film. So she's a strong character. It's a very confusing character. She, she I mean... I like the backstory. She seemed to clearly fought her way away from wherever she came from. Bond at one point says he'll get her back home, and she's like, I don't want to go home. Home was terrible. It took me 15 years to get out of there. You know, at the end of the film, she claims to love James and wants to be with him, but she's also strong enough to realize that he is not a great bet and that she's much better off being the wife of a president. So she's set up as kind of a gold digger at the end of the film, but she's also, you know, she's unapologetic in that sense. She's you know, she's not going to just win herself over to romance of a, of a man and let herself be relying on that. So I kind of dig that. You know, she's unapologetic, and I love that about her. Carrie Lowell is Pam, uh, is a really interesting character. She's a badass. She doesn't get to be swept away by Bond immediately, and she never needs to be rescuing, rescued. You know, in fact, she's the one that rescues him. You know, she's good at what she does. She's capable. And she gets to kill the biggest piece of shit in the film, Dario, played by none other than Benicio del Toro, who probably would now play a Bond film in his own right, a Bond Bond villain, sorry, in his own right. Man, that character is an absolute garbage human being. He's the one that that rapes Della. Apparently, it happens off screen, thankfully, uh, but he actually brags about it, uh, and is it's pretty abhorrent. Thankfully, he meets about as gruesome an ending as is possible in a Bond film. Uh, you know, closing up my thoughts on this, you get Robert Davey. Robert Davey plays Sanchez. Uh, you know him as Jake from The Goonies. I really liked him a lot here. He was charming and simple. He played the part with, with restraint and gave a more grounded, nuanced villain for us. Now, of course, that means he's not a typical Bond villain. He doesn't have a thing that makes him stand out. So there's that. But I like the simplicity of it for a change. 
you know, he'll never rank in any of the top five greatest Bond villains, but I, I dug him nonetheless. Also, totally knew that Wedding Present Lighter was going to come back in a really handy way. So, nice setup, beautiful payoff. Uh, so that's it for Timothy Dalton. Short and sweet. Uh, right in, right out. Didn't hate him as a Bond. Didn't love him. Didn't think he was the, the best thing ever. I like that he was softer. He was he was a, a more modern Bond. Uh, but yeah, I, I can't say that I'm not super excited for what's next, which is Goldeneye, which, man oh man, I have been excited to rewatch since I started this whole thing. Oh, Goldeneye. Um, so, so I'll just be honest up front. This is my James Bond. Pierce Brosnan was the one that I grew up with. Um, you know, I, I was a teenager when this movie came out. Uh, probably, I guess it was 95, I think. So I was around 14. I, I saved up to buy a Nintendo 64 just to buy the Goldeneye video game. And because I have that video game memorized, I kind of have this film memorized. At least I know all the beats as they uh, pretend to the video game and spent so many pleasurable hours playing that. Definitely much more familiar with that than in the movie. Um, That said, I, I still have seen this James Bond film probably more than any other James Bond film. And I love it. The opening scene of this film is fucking fantastic. The shot of him bungee jumping down to the bottom of that wall, you know, right up into the, the intro, we finally see his face. And he says he forgot to knock and then punches the guy. So you get that great Bond quip. You know, the intro to Bond here just shows him as being charming and capable as fuck. And it does it in record time. This might be the best. I mean, he skydives into a moving fucking plane. And then pulls it up and moves it. It's phenomenal. It's just phenomenal. And, you know, the, the great, you know, supposed death scene with Alec is 006. It could be the best opening of a Bond film to date and maybe the best opening to a Bond film ever. It's, it's a truly phenomenal set piece that should be studied and not copied, but inspire people. It, it's really, really great. I forgot Famke Jensen was Xenia. I don't know why I forgot that. Uh, I love the setup to her. Knowing that she's deadly in bed is just a fantastic foil for Bond. Because we know what he usually does, even even with the femme fatales. And so it's a nice foreshadowing and getting us worried about that. Even though they don't really ever get close to hooking up, it's still nice to get us worried about that. I totally forgot that Alan Cumming played Boris. I remembered Boris from the movie. He was always one of my favorite characters that I loved to hate. But for some reason, it totally... I forgot that it was him. I love the the whole pen bit that he has and how it plays into the explosive pen that Bond has and the amount of tension they milk in that in that final sequence is really, really delicious. I love how cocky he is and the irony of his death being frozen forever as he's screaming he's immortal. Really, really love it. Um, let, let's jump before we, you know, as we're into the supporting characters here, let's talk about those that uh, MI6. Money Penny, it kicks some serious ass here. She's played by someone named Samantha Bond, which is a nice little irony. I mean, she's the one that's in charge here. I love that 
you know, the, the contrast to her and, 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 and the money penny of old, where the money penny of old was, was kind of played as, as pining James Bond and, and, and they kind of played her as a bit sad sack in that she never thought that she was, she was, um, worthy of Bond where here it's the opposite and she's the one in charge and she's putting him in his place saying that you never had me and one day you have to make good on all your innuendos. She even calls him on sexual harassment. It's so good. She's lovely, funny, and in charge. Love the concept of a new M. Uh, I really like the idea that we're, we're seeing kind of the inner workings of MI6. I love that she calls him on the shit that he's done for decades. It's a really beautiful little monologue where she calls him a relic of the cold law and misogynistic dinosaur. Really great stuff. I love that there's tension and conflict between Bond and M, where they don't really like each other. You know, he sees her as a numbers g- person, and she just sees him as this outdated thing. Uh, it's a really great setup into this new age of Bond. I never, I just rewatched uh, Goodwill Hunting last night for for the first time in years, and and so you'll you'll you can hear that episode where I, I go on and on about how much I love Minnie Driver, totally forgot that she has a, a small, small bit in this movie playing a Russian singing Stand By Your Man. And God damn it, she, she steals that scene in such a small, short performance. Uh, it's really, really fantastic and enjoyable. Uh, I really love the steam room scene between Bond and Xenia where you expect him to give over to her charms. Uh, and... Yeah, I just really like how that played off. Uh, let's talk about the other, the, the real Bond girl in this movie, uh, Isabella Skorp. I'm going to say her last name wrong. Skorupko? Uh, she plays Natalia. I adore her so much. She's smart, witty, beautiful, charming, doesn't take any shit, and she's a hero in her own right. You know, she's genius and just beautiful. That final scene between the two of them is just sweet. And it's another one of those great Bond girls that makes me really sad that she doesn't get to have a relationship with Bond moving forward. Um, just really, really charming and, and, and a great way to ease us into the 21st century of, of Bond. Uh, I, love, I love the idea of Alec as 006 as a villain. The idea of someone who's close to Bond who they have a real personal history with, uh, an intimate history, and they, they, you know, they grew up believing in the same things. Their interplay and the, and the sense of history is really great. But i got to say, that scene where he advances himself on Italia is horrifying and not in a good way. He forces himself on her repeatedly, despite how hard she tries to fight him off, and she tries to slap him, and who knows how long it would have lasted without the Bond interruption. And that just feels like it's not necessary in a movie like this. We don't need that. There's other ways for him to get that point across. Uh, That said, he is the villain, so it just makes his death all the more satisfying in the end. Uh, So, yeah, I I have no real bones with this movie other than that one creepy scene with Alec, which you can pass off as being quote-unquote, I guess, okay, because he's supposed to be a terrible shit person. You know, I think this is a seriously fantastic fucking movie. This is the Bond I grew up with, and it's the first time he ever felt grounded and real to me, despite some things being obviously over the top and a bit big. But, but Bond never felt like a three-dimensional human being before for me, really. And, and that's what Brosnan brings to it. 
you know, he doesn't make him feel like he's invincible or perfect. He makes him feel like kind of a, a rounded person, and that's what I really love about Brosnan's Bond, uh, especially in this one. Anyway, I, I think Goldeneye is about as perfect of a Bond film as you can get. The ladies are groundbreaking, and and Bond feels fresh and new, and and brought in the tail, you know, the tail end of the twenty first century. And and Brosnan plays a role that he's probably born to play in a lot of ways, uh, and just really delightful. So, uh, yeah, I was looking forward to rewatching this one more than any of them. And I don't know if I've seen the rest of Brosnan's run uh, after this one. So, uh, so I look forward to diving into those and seeing if, if, if they stand up as well as, as GoldenEye does. Because GoldenEye is still a truly terrific film. Next up is Tomorrow Never Dies. So for some reason, I guess I never saw this movie. I don't know why that is, given how big of a fan of Goldeneye I was at the time it came out. And the fact that Terry Hatcher is in this, and nobody had a bigger crush on Terry Hatcher than I did at that point in my life. So the fact that I missed this one is baffling to me. Uh, otherwise, let's get into it. The opening is just fine. I mean, it's it's nowhere near the awesomeness of Goldeneye. So it was kind of a letdown in that regard. In terms of the overall storyline, we've got a pretty interesting concept for a villain, if nothing else, in Carver, uh, who's played by Jonathan Price. So we got a media mogul who's trying to start World War III by playing China against the British. That's an interesting idea. Unfortunately, Carver is kind of boring, <laughs> a bit flat, uh, I mean, it's interesting some of the tactics he uses. I like that stuff. I like the way he controls the media. He's clearly got a president, a president in his back pocket. Uh, but it also just makes you go, what does this guy need? Like, what does he really just want to do? Sell more newspapers? Uh, you know, he, he has a little speech at some point going on about, about Napoleon and these other guys. So I guess he wants to form his own kind of control and his own form of military that's really media-based. Uh, that's interesting to some extent, but I don't really get a context for it or, or what he wants to achieve once he has that. So in that regard, Carver just kind of feels like a cardboard cutout of a villain who just wants to do bad things because he's a bad guy. So that's unfortunate. Uh, let's get into Terry Hatcher since I already brought her up. Oh, Terry Hatcher, I love you. I loved you. Around this time, my love of her probably would have stemmed from Lois and Clark. Uh, she was my my um, <laughs> Lois Lane. I think she's a lot of people my age is Lois Lane. And even though that show is a little bit cheesy, I always thought that she was kind of perfect in it um, and, and, and loved it because of her. She doesn't have a ton of screen time, screen time in this in this film. Uh, huge spoiler alert. She dies about maybe a third into the film. Definitely not by halfway. She's, she's gone by then. But what's really amazing is that she's effective in that little amount of time. You really get a sense of her and Bond's history and some of the pain that was inside of it. There's a real sweetness to their love scene. And that's not often found in Bond films. And so that was really, really refreshing. I love the bit after her death 
there's a great bit in the background on the news already reporting it and a man who we assume they're talking about is James Bond. It's a bit stupid plot-wise to have a TV on knowing that they're baiting Bond into this room. I like it for the purposes of the movie and showing how many of Carver is, but it doesn't make a lick of sense outside of that. Uh, you know, again, we have a woman having to die so that James Bond has a personal motivation to avenge her, which is not amazing. I don't love that aspect of the movie, uh, but it doesn't bother me as much as I've seen in previous installments of, of this series, so I'm going gonna, gonna to let it go for the most part. But Terry Hatcher, you, you had very little screen time in this movie, far less than you deserved, but man, oh man, did you use every moment of it. Love seeing Ricky Jay in the movie. He's a Paul Thomas Anderson veteran. Uh, he's kind of underused, but, you know, just fun to see him. I mean, overall, this film really is about the set pieces and the ladies, so let's let's just talk about that stuff. Uh, the remote control car chase was pretty fun. I liked that. I liked it going through the, the car lot and all the stuff that, that revolved around that. I really like the U.S. Army guy character. I can't remember what he's called. He's the one that keeps on calling... James, Jimmy, or Jimbo. I love the bit when they're... I mean, they really only have... He has one scene in this movie. And I love the bit where they're being cagey with each other, but information. And you really get a sense of the bigger world that they all play in. Even when they work together, they still have their own agendas. The motorcycle chase uh, with, uh, with Waylon is really, really great. Um, I love it when they only have one hand accessible, and so they have to both maneuver the bike with one each hand. I mean, she's she's utterly fantastic in this movie in general. It, it's pretty unique for her as a Bond girl. You know, we've seen capable women before that are James Bond's equals, but they've always been really sexualized. And I'd say that Wei Lin is sexy a bit without being sexualized. She's a really fascinating character. You know, we've also seen this idea of a Bond girl who just, you know, she works alone and... But you get an even further sense of, of this as a truly independent, capable woman who is, is just phenomenal and as capable, if not more capable, than Bond, really. So I really, really enjoyed her character and, 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 and everything about her. She's, she's top-notch and, and top-five Bond women of all time for me. The final shoot 'em up feels exactly like that. It's just a big, long scene that goes on for forever and has a lot of fun blowing stuff up. And and that's my biggest complaint with this this sequence and kind of the movie in general is that the action sequences just go on and on and on and on and on and ultimately they don't matter. Most of them could be cut in half and you wouldn't affect story whatsoever. The reversals in the action become mind-numbing and I found them just kind of putting me to sleep. So this, uh, for me, as a follow-up to GoldenEye, is definitely a step down. Um, GoldenEye, I consider almost a perfect Bond film in a lot of ways. And this one just felt like they were kind of falling into old bad habits to some extent. Uh, And so, yeah, it lost some of the freshness for me. Uh, Although it did have some great set pieces and some fun stuff going on. Uh, You know, it had, had two amazing Bond girls in this movie, I hate calling them Bond girls, Bond women. Um, and so that was really the highlight for me. Uh, next up is The World Is Not Enough. The world is
I'm almost entirely sure that I saw this movie when I was a teenager when it came out, but I don't remember much outside of the really bad Christmas puns. And I remember Bond having a shoulder hurt. Um, although that doesn't play into the end game of this movie, which is really kind of annoying and frustrating. They really just use it as uh, a technique, which I can get into later on, uh, uh, to reveal that uh, Electra knows or has passed that information to Renard. But it doesn't really figure into the end sequence, which is kind of a missed opportunity. Anyway, I, I, I relent. Let's get into it. Um, holy cow, the opening to this film is really, really great. Uh, I love that it starts on Bond's face. In the last film, I think it took a while before we even revealed where Bond was inside of the sequence. But I like how... I mean, this is just an example of how you, you can start a film really small and simple, but make it really effective. We don't need to see Bond blowing up an airfield. You know, this film, this, this opening shows him doing his thing with wit and charm, and it's really exciting. You know, we get the terrible blonde womanizing moment where he says, where the woman asks if she needs to check his figures... He says, I'm sure they're rounded. And then she, but it's great because she ends up being, you know, the bad guy, which which is even better because um, it's revealed later. You know, just the way they use women tropes in this movie is really, really great because they set her up as just like the um, sexualized, attractive, um, you know, secretary or whatever she's supposed to be. But then we, we discover that she's actually this highly skilled assassin. Uh, it's really smart and really, really strong. Um, but also, <laughs> okay, now that I think about it <clears throat> and go back through it, so they make it really, really hard for Bond to get all this money, but the money is what they need to to kill this guy. So it just feels like a real, real elaborate ruse for no reason and that he's been s- set up to succeed no matter what, which is actually a failure. Now I'm confused. Um, I'm going to leave that there because it ultimately doesn't matter, but that is something that I'm processing now and is starting to bother me. Moving on. Uh, I love that this opening just kept and kept on going. You know, we thought it was over, and then all of a sudden we're in MI6, and then it blows up. There's a bomb inside MI6, like super exciting opening. And even and then it goes on, but it's still just this, this cat and mouse chase between two people. And, and I love action that's more clean and simple like that. Uh, I really, really want to get into uh, a lot of this, the, Bond, the, the, the women in particular in this film. I guess first, while we're talking about it, let's talk about Samantha Bond, who plays Moneypenny. Really hasn't felt like they, they, they've kept up with what they set up with her in her character in GoldenEye and how strong they made her. So that's been a bit of a disappointment as, as the Brosnan films, films carry on. Uh, so before we, we get into it, let's talk about Robert Carlyle uh, for a second. I forgot that he was in this movie, even though I totally knew he was in this movie. I love you know setting him up as a villain who's got a bullet in his head that makes him stronger as it slowly kills him. You know, it, it, it's a throwback to like guys like Jaws in, in the previous movies of these villains who kind of get off on pain, but uh, but it works here really really well because I feel like. Carlisle grounds this character in a reality and doesn't make him just this weird trope villain. Uh, and I feel like I love I love just the the romantic poeticness of this guy who is just on borrowed time but is doing everything he can to help the woman that he loves. I think there's something really really great about that. You know, I love the moment when he does mess with Bond's shoulder and he and he says that one line that cues Bond into knowing that Electra's part of this 
this whole thing. And I love that reveal and how, and how it goes down with Electra. I love the way she's played. And this is what I'm, I think is the, the real strength of this movie and what makes it one of the, the better Bond films for sure uh, is, is just the way it uses Bond's weakness, which is women, against him in a really, really modern and strong way. Um, you know, Bond, th- th- even when it's, it's revealed that, you know, Elektra is, is kind of in on this thing with Renard, Bond is still thinking that it's Stockholm Syndrome, that she's the victim. You know, he thinks of her as this fragile girl that needs to be protected, and I love that he's so wrong about it. And it even comes close to the end of the film, and he still thinks that Renard is the one that turned her, and it's satisfying to learn that she was the one in control the whole time. And how long it takes Bond to realize that and, and how punished he, he kind of is throughout the film for that in a good way. You know, when Electra finally shows her true colors, it's beautiful. You enter the film thinking that she's the Bond girl, only to discover that she's the bad guy. Full stop. She's the, the, the villain of the film. And, and, you know, Bond sees her as the second coming of potentially Tracy, his wife. But really, she's the second coming of Blowfield. You know, she's using the perception that other people have of her against them. They want her to use her as bait. Not really. That's what she's doing to them. It's a first in Bond history, and it makes it easily the most progressive film in its run for that alone. Despite having Denise Richard (laughs) cast in the film, you know, which almost takes it five steps back. But, I mean, it's bizarre to me that that even exists in the same film, but we'll get into that. I really love Lecture's request quest for revenge i think it's a good one it's justified it's simple it makes sense it's personal and they lay out the exposition of it throughout the film in a really organic way never feels like a villain monologue uh you know by the time her motivations are revealed we get it it's something that we don't have to agree on obviously she is the bad guy but we can get behind it we can understand it you know there's a lot of little things i really love i love when m tells uh Tells Bond to shadow Electra, but that shadows stay behind or in front and never on top. Um, you know, she's giving him shit for being a sexualized human being. Even at the end of the film, when they're looking at the uh, the heat rays and realizing that Bond is now betting Dr. Jones. Of course he was going to do that. The skiing sequence, there's a skiing sequence that's really pretty and refreshing and beautiful. And of course it typically turns into uh, a scene of them on the run. Which is another great throwback, I think. Uh, to this whole bit of Tracy and on Her Majesty's Secret Service where he, where Tracy was the Bond girl that he ended up marrying. So it's a nice way to kind of uh, unofficially tie those two ideas together for those that are fans of the series. I love the, the nightclub that Bond ends up in and he wears those, those uh, glasses that they're kind of x-ray glasses and they, they show that basically everyone in this building has a gun. So let's get into Denise Richards in this movie. She's not great. Um, I, I, I don't mean to pick on anybody in particular. I don't love doing that in these. Uh, but I'll say there's, a, there's the, a separation in this for me. It's like, first of all, you, you the character of Dr. Christmas Jones, just let's just take her name out of it because it's, it's so ridiculous. Uh, the character is a good character. You know, she she's an expert at what she does. She doesn't take any shit. She's right on the action along with Bond. Uh, the film doesn't work without her in it. She provides information that Bond couldn't have, and she does things that Bond can't do. And that's really great. And, and it's all the more of a shame that they couldn't have had a stronger actor in the role. And it's not Denise Richards' fault. You know, she was just miscast. You know, from the moment we meet her, she she comes out of the radiation suit, and she's in a halter top. So they're 
instantly sexualizing her for no reason other than the fact that she's an attractive young woman. And I just don't buy her as, as, as this character. She, she has a hard time with the lines, and you can see that. Everything feels very forced and wooden, and it's just a shame because there are so many great actors of that time that really could have nailed this character. And maybe they aren't this pinup girl that Denise Richards is, but it, it's just a shame that you have a character like Elektra who is really, really playing on the tropes of, of the film and the, and the franchise and then also have the casting of Denise Richards in this other part that could have been... You could have had two amazing, really progressive Bond girls, you know, fully rounded, but instead uh, it, it, it kind of feels muddled, and, and that's a real shame, given the other strengths this film has. I love the Judy Dench. You know, what, what they're doing with M in this series is, is great. Like, she gets a proper story here. The plot itself is largely motivated by an action she made in telling Electra's father not to negotiate with terrorists, and terrorists. And Electra blames her for that, as, as she should, from her point of view. You know, we learn that Emma's a mother, and probably not a good one. We get to see her aid in her own escape and how smart she is and capable she is. It's a real step up for the character. And it really, it just feels like Emma's usually there to provide exposition and setup. But Emma's got skin in the game this time, and, and it makes the character all the better and the world all the stronger for it. There's a lot of little nitpicky things I have. Like, it makes zero sense that after the, uh, the bomb explodes... And they have, uh, you know, Dr. Jones and, and Bond cornered outside where they just try to blow them up with a bomb. They don't just shoot them. You know, I, it, it seems like Electra has just asked them to bring them over so she can personally kill Bond herself. There's no reason to keep Bond alive at that point. And I hate it when these movies do that. You know, you, you want, there's no reason. If there was a reason she needed him for something, I would, could see it. But it's just this weird blind ego thing that is just frustrating because... It's a much smarter character than that. The whole sequence uh, where she's got him in that chair also just shows how we don't need huge explosions and nonstop shooting to make these endings interesting. You keep it simple and focused, and that's all we want and need to follow these characters. Even this, the, the submarine sequence, which follows after, is, is, uh, is pared down quite a bit compared to a lot of these endings. But I love that about it. I love that it just wasn't this nonstop shooting brigade and I was able to just follow the, the action simply, and, and it doesn't put me into a, like a, a, an action coma. So that was really, really great. Uh, of course, the movie ends with all the terrible Christmas puns we were expecting that are highly sexualized. You know, I thought Christmas only comes once a year. There's literally no other way to take that. It's not even an innuendo at that point. He's just literally saying, I made you come twice. Aren't I amazing in bed? You know, it's a bit of a risk to end your film on something that could be a, a laugh or a huge eye roll groaner, and that's what that was for me. But anyway, that said, I like this film a lot. It's not as iconic for me as Goldeneye, probably just because I haven't seen it enough, and I probably didn't play a video game based on it when I was younger, nonstop. Uh, but it's got a lot of great pieces that helps make it a really solid bomb film. Bond film, and I just really enjoyed it all for overall. It's a story that's simple and personal and easy to follow, and it's got great characters from the, 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 the women to the men all the way through. Real strong. Sad to be heading into my last Brosnan film coming up, but here we are. Die Another Day is next. So bear with me, because this is probably going to be a little bit all over the place. Uh, <laughs> my notes are a bit scattered, and my thoughts are as such. Uh, 
final film in the Brosnan run. Uh, yeah, let, let's just get into it. There's there's some really good stuff in here, and some stuff that just makes me sad in the heart. Um, I love the opening. I love Bond surfing. You know, you you kind of expect that to be a villain's entrance, especially when we see more than one person. So it's a nice treat to reveal that it's Bond. You know, I love the little beat of the the guy being beat up inside of the punching bag, and then and then it's revealed that it's a person inside. The the funny little bit about uh, it being his anger therapist and how he requests a new one. <laughs> He's firing the guy, and then we get this this bizarre opening credit scene that is unlike anything we've seen in the run of Bond. It's a torture scene uh, where we, we get to see that Bond has become a, a not a prisoner of war, but, you know, a prisoner for 14 months. He's tortured. It's, it's great. I mean, I love it when we get stuff in a Bond film that's completely fresh and new and unlike anything we've ever seen. And for Brosnan's final outing, it's really, really great to give him a new look and a setup for him. You know, M- MI6 abandons him and he still won't talk. You know, that's Bond. He's loyal to the end. You know, M even goes out of her way to say that her his freedom came at too high of a price, and that he could have used his cyanide tablet tablet to get to get out of this situation. I mean, what what amazing little setup, and just the fact that he doesn't know who to trust. But they don't trust him. They don't know what he gave gave up when he was in captivity. What he said or didn't say. If he's been brainwashed, it's a really really great start to to this, and, and puts us in a different place than we've ever been in. With Bond, you know his, his double status is taken away. You know we, we we get to see the consequences of this life that Bond has chosen, the negative side to it when things don't go well, and and things are turned against him. It, it it's really really nice to see that. But then I feel like we lose that halfway through the film. I mean Bond goes rogue. He goes to this hotel that takes him in and turns him back into our Bond, and he works with the Chinese intelligence. That's part of running this hotel. I mean, all of that's really, really great. And then halfway through the film, it basically restarts, and now it's just a regular Bond film, uh, where we get Q giving the gadgets, our new Q, John Cleese, giving the gadgets, and all that kind of stuff. And that's great. I love seeing that. But it just felt like it had a really, really unique setup, and then that just sort of disappeared about halfway through, which was kind of a shame, for me anyway. Uh, you know, I, 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 I just thought that it had this. Inc- the first half of the movie sets up this a Bond film in a way we have never seen a Bond film, and I feel like the second half of the movie turns into Joel Schumacher's Batman and Robin, and I'll get more into that as we go along. But that's just kind of how I feel. We get a little. We get Michael Madsen in a weird cameo. It's not even a cameo. It's, it's an outright role, but it just feels like he doesn't have much to do. And because it's Michael Madsen, you're expecting something of him. He kind of feels just this weird small token role. And it pulls you out of it, given how specific of an actor he is. And they don't really do much with it. There's this weird little moment I want to bring up. James Bond breaks into this hotel and he steals some grapes when he breaks into this room. And he's just munching on them as he runs around. I don't know why. I jotted down that I love that. Um... We're, we're, I want to get into the girls, but before I get into that, I really, really love um, Zhao's look, the uh, the traditional Bond as secondary villain. You know, we're, we're used to seeing kind of weird, different looks from from guys like that. So I kind of dug that, even though it, it starts into a thing that bothered me a lot that I'll get into later. I love Madonna's little cameo. I kind of wish that it was more. You know, I could have dug uh, a sex scene between Madonna and Bond. You know, give me that. 
I, I liked the fake out of the simulation room, um, especially when we saw that Money Penny was dead. That really upset me, especially because we hadn't seen her in the movie yet. And I was like, if that's Samantha Bond's last appearance as Money Penny, and we didn't even get a scene with her, I was going to be real pissed. So I'm glad that that, that that didn't turn out that way. I like the little uh, one-off joke with Q saying that this is Bond's 20th watch to uh, to comment on this is the 20th film. It's a nice little mention there. That invisible car is ridiculous, um, but that just gets into a lot of the other ridiculous stuff that's coming up. Like the Ice Palace is really bizarre and just you know further goes into my whole Joel Schumacher, Batman, and Robin comment. Uh, let's get into the women. Or maybe let's... No, we'll get back into the bizarreness of other stuff after. Let, let's talk about Miranda Frost. She's um, she's our double agent in the film. She's that typical... I mean, in, in three out of four Brosnan films, we've had someone double-cross him. So he's really bad at making friends and, and, and choices that he makes. And this is the second time we've had a, a, an MI6 agent in this run of Bond films turn out to be a double agent. So, you know, MI6... Not great at their recruiting. Uh, Rosamund Pike's great in the role. I really, really dig her. Uh, I, I like that she resists. I like that little scene where they're making out and she's resisting him. But then she sleeps with him right away. And it makes zero sense until it's revealed that she's the traitor. And then it makes total sense. But it does feel like a weird flaw. I guess it's foreshadowing. So I'll accept it. And I'm down with, with the bad Bond girls that sleep with him for their own gain when it's their choice. I mean, I don't get a sense that anyone tells her to do that. In fact... M explicitly tells her not to sleep with Bond. And she uses it to get access to his gun and, you know, literally and figuratively disarm him. And I really, really like that. You know, she knows that women are his weakness. She even says that right. She's read her, his dossier. She knows everything about it and she uses it against him. You'd think Bond would learn his lesson after dealing with Elektra in the last film. But, I mean, let's be honest here. Bond never learns lessons when it comes to women. I mean, her transformation from MI6 worker to Zhao's, I don't know, girlfriend, sidekick, it's a bit bizarre. I buy that they met in college and she understood his plight and wanted to join his side, I guess. Uh, But the thing that bothered me was just how much she just shifted once that happened. And then you, you get this thing with her outfit in the final sequence that's just going out of its way to sexualize her just for the sake of it. There's nothing practical about that outfit she's wearing. It's essentially a bra and pants. And it's purely just there for the male viewer. And they go out of their way to make sure that Jinx gets, you know, starts taking off her protective layers and gets a tank top as well. You know, other than that, the fight is awesome. It's actually a really, 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 really great fight. So I like that about it. Uh, I was kind of disappointed by just how the, the, the one little gadget he gets with the ring and how quickly it's just used with that glass floor that just happens to be his only getaway when he needs it. Uh, that was a bit... <laughs> I mean, that's a typical thing in Bond fashion, though. They, they just specifically give him these little weapons that can only be used in a very specific situation that they have no idea is if it's going to come up or not. Uh, that one just felt really, really bad for me. They really... Uh, I got to say, the filmmaking in this is easily some of the weakest we've had in the, in the run of Bond. It feels like... This director just saw The Matrix and wanted to let us know that they saw it with some of these these speed pans and slow-mo pieces. It just feels really, really cheesy and clunky, and I kind of hate it. The amount of CGI that's used in this film is just a real bad choice. You know, the, the iceberg sequence where he's, like, parasailing or whatever that is is just so bad. 
Uh, it's almost as bad as it seems with Jinx and the lasers. You know, the film's tone is all over the place. Like I said, it starts off gritty and real with this Bond being disavowed and on his own. And then it just ends up, like I said, like like Shoemaker's Batman and Robin. And it's just a real, it's a real disappointing shift in where it's gone from from where we got, uh, where we started off with. Let's talk about Halle Berry's Jinx. So good. It might be a record for how fast Bond gets in bed with the, quote, Bond girl. And we're not accustomed to actually seeing an actual sex scene, I don't think. So I love how Jinx is, you know, another one of those female Bonds. She fits nicely on that staple of sexually confident Bond women who know the score, can give as good as they get. She's aggressive, assertive, charming, funny, and capable. You know, she can be vulnerable and kick ass and all of it feels real. It's a real shame that they never got around to the planned spinoff with this character. And you know what? If they are developing a, a Bond cinematic universe the way that I, I've heard some rumors of, give us more Jinx. I'm in. Even, even you know, keep Halle Berry in the role. I, I would watch a handful of, of Jinx movies. Um, I'm going to talk quickly about something and then get into my main issue with the movie. I love the fake. I, I I love that scene at the very very end of the movie. Not the very very end, but almost where we get that beat where Money Penny and James start to hook up. I mean, yes, it feels like fan fiction, and but I loved it. I love Samantha Bond as Money Penny in this series. I love how strong she starts out, and I love the idea that maybe we're going to end with Bond giving in and hooking up with this woman that he's secretly been in love with all of this these years. And then ugh, it turns into just a joke where Money Penny is using this technology, this, you know, the training technology to have a little fling with James. And it really fucking pissed me off. I hated it. Because we start off so strong with, with Money Penny and Goldeneye and having Bond's number and giving him shit and saying, you can never have me. And then at the end, all we do is get to have this sequence where we see her pining over Bond and using it as her fantasy. And it's a real step back, especially given that it's our final moment with her. It's a real step back from where we started with her. And that just made me really upset. And it just felt like a real step step back from, from where Samantha's Bond money penny started. Yeah, and especially for our final moment in the Brosnan run. It was it was uh it was a letdown. You know, I got I got my little fan fiction moment for a second, but at the service of kind of discrediting a, what was a really strong character at the beginning of this this four arc four arc film. So let's talk about our main big bad, who is Colonel Moon, also Gideon Graves. It's just so bizarre. We set him up as this kind of playboy who doesn't sleep, which Sure, uh, I I guess I buy that for a guy that doesn't have any bags under his eyes and just seems completely functional. He has like these this dream thing he does once an hour every now and then. It's just bizarre. He starts off as so aggro with Bond, and it's so quickly established that there's something going on. That sword fight between them is just ridiculous. Um, I mean, it makes sense later on when you know who who Graves is, but the, the whole thing just feels like a setup for something bigger going on. Um, you know, he, he gets that throwaway line that's just foreshadowing where we say, we know who we are under their skin. There's no way, there's no two ways about it. I mean, the entire plot 
of of revealing that Graves is actually Colonel Moon or Captain Moon, whoever he is. You know, a person who says they majored in Western hypocrisy and then decides to turn themselves into a privileged white male. It makes no sense. <laughs> the only time the film actually acknowledges how bad it is is when the father reacts and says, what have you done to yourself? I mean, look, I'm a white guy and I find it to be ridiculously racist and wrong. I'm not going to you know, labor on it too much because I think it's just obvious. It's just a weird choice for the film franchise to make in 2002. You know, I get the idea of wanting to have a big bad plot twist, and this is potentially the mother of all plot twists. Potentially. But it leaves a really disgusting taste in my mouth, and it leaves Brosnan's run as Bond on a real low note for me, which is a shame given how strongly it starts with Goldeneye. I mean, thank God it was rebooted after this one. Graves is easily the Bond villain that I hate the most, and not in the I love to hate way, just legit hate him for so many reasons. The character doesn't make sense, the smugness is gross, and there's nothing redeeming about him. He's just a pure one-note villain, and it's just a shame. So, I don't hate Die Another Day by any means, but it could. it's probably the weakest film in Brosnan's run for me. Uh, although I would argue it, it starts off as strong as any of them and maybe even more than most of them because it starts off in a really unique place and then it kind of just, I feel it squanders that entire premise and then ends up being kind of the worst of what some Bond is with this cheesy jokiness. So it's just a shame. It's a letdown. But here's the thing. I know that what's coming up next is glorious. I know that we're getting a, a reboot with Bond with the gritty and grounded Daniel Craig, and I am super excited. Let's all go to the lobby. Thanks for listening to the third part of my ongoing James Bond series. You can listen to back episodes by going to iTunes or wherever it is you listen to the podcast and finding them. The fourth and final will air next week. Another reminder that if you like the show, please subscribe to the podcast, spread the word about it. You can find me on Twitter, at Lon Jeremy, and go to Facebook for Black Hole Films. Leave a review there, or an Apple Podcast, or wherever it is you listen to us. And until next time, go watch something you've never seen before. Thanks. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat.